Make your way in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We've wrapped up sitting in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, getting to know the Corinthian church in a greater depth. So now we're back in the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 18, verse 18 this morning. Sorry, my brain's really distracted right now. Just, just meditating on God's faithfulness. Um, in Utah, uh, we had one of those vanity plates, and on the, on the plate we had faithful. So just as, as we drove around town, you know, when we'd see our car and those kinds of things, we have the license plates nailed up in our shed right now. But just the reminder of how faithful God has been to you. You know, as uh, Chris had us pause and just give God thanks. And just, you know, taking that to heart and, and talking to God and just telling him, thank you. And just, you know, meditating on the last 20 years of my life as he's revealed himself to me of all the gratitude that I have towards God, that he's been faithful to his promises. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. And that's a, a lot of the subject matter that we'll sit in this morning. So we've already prayed. We are going to read from 1818 down through chapter 19, verse 10, and then we'll back up. So Paul still remained a good while. This is Corinth. He was there for about a year and a half. And then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. This is Antioch, Syrian Antioch. So this is home for Paul at this time in his life. So he's sailing for home. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him, husband and wife. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, which is uh, the Israeli coast port town, and gone up, literally he's going up to Jerusalem, and greeted the church there, he went down to Antioch. So finally landing in Syria where he was aiming at. And he spent some time there. He departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, so modern-day Turkey, strengthening all the disciples. So this is the end and the beginning, end of the second missionary journey, beginning of his third missionary journey. If you have uh, those maps in the back of your Bible. Verse 24, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, which is uh, on the coast of Egypt, an eloquent man and mighty in scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent, literally inflamed in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, which again, that's where Corinth is, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures 
that Jesus is the Christ. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened, literally stubborn and obstinate hearts and minds, and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, before the multitude he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Well, I've titled this morning's message, The Way. This here in verse, what is that, verse 9, just this reference to followers of Jesus Christ. So we refer to ourselves as Christians, as, as Christianity, that major, major subject matter. But here in the early church, again, the followers, this, this sect, this Judas, uh, sect of Judaism at this time, for the most part, was referred to as followers of the way. And as we sit in that, in our own context, we have all, to one degree or another, have been following Jesus for different lengths of time in our lives. Jesus may be new to you. He may be very old to you. You may have been following him for a long time. But when you look at the path that you have had in life, your journey, your road, it's been very unique. As we go around the room, we can sit down across the table from one another and share incredible stories about the way, about what it's been to get to know Jesus, about what it's been like to have him tell you to stop and wait, to have him tell you to turn to the left or to the right, to have him give you something, to have him take something away from you. And over this time, you've grown from a babe in Christ and some of us are still immature. Some of us, we're all still growing. None of us have attained. We take our little theme verse out of Philippians 3 here in regards to upward and onward. We are first, we are following Jesus towards that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We forget those things that are behind it. We don't need to pay attention to the sin and destruction and devastation. There's lessons to learn. There's things that we can look back and remember. But no, we are going onward in our relationship with Jesus on this path that's called the way. But again, in this, in this distinction in this room, it's looked different for all of us. And sit in a, turn back to chapter 18, very beginning, where he is leaving so, uh, Sancreia, however you pronounce this, 
city. So Corinth, it's, it sits between these, these two seas, and on the, on the eastern side, Sincrea is the port town for Corinth on the Aegean Sea. So it's where Paul would have picked up a ship to, to go up and over to Ephesus and eventually down to Israel. So here, it's, we're told that Paul cuts his hair off because of a vow. And when you sit in this, Paul is following Jesus in the way, according to his culture, his context, his background, and all the transformations that Jesus has been brought into Paul's life. Paul was a Jew from Tarsus, which is in Turkey, not from Israel. So his dad was a Pharisee. He was, he was raised in that culture as a very religiously strict Jew. His parents at some point send him down to Jerusalem to sit underneath the feet of Gamaliel, to be taught by a respected elder rabbi religious leader for the Jews. So as we watch Paul and his zeal and his knowledge and his personality, how God wired him, we watch him making havoc of the church like a bull in a china closet. And we watch him in Acts chapter 9 again introduce an appearance of Jesus Christ to him. Jesus reveals himself to Paul, and Paul's life is radically changed over a few days. And then we're told he immediately preaches Jesus as the Christ there in Damascus. Now, as you walk with Paul, as we've journeyed with him, as we're traveling through the book of Acts, we watch him mature and change over time. But there are some things that are still rooted in his personality, that are still rooted in his culture. This vow that's taken, it's, it's a Nazarite vow. You can go to Numbers chapter 21 and read about what this vow entails. Now, sitting in his culture, he's not following the directions according to Numbers 21 exactly. So he's either modified it a little bit in Christianity, or Judaism has modified the definition of the practice of this vow that he's taken over time. Regardless, Paul is still sitting as a Jewish man, a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, according, according to his relationship with God, and he's made a vow of some sort to God. A Nazarite was to cut his hair off at the end of the vow. It seems like as Paul, as his vow ended at this point, has he had some kind of conversation with the Lord as he's been there in Corinth? Jesus told him to remain there, to not be afraid, to speak boldly the gospel in this community. Jesus says he had many people here in Corinth. Did Paul take a vow at the beginning when he was there all by himself? Did he take a vow in the middle of it at some point? Now that the Holy Spirit is moving him on, we don't know the specifics of why he's leaving, but is he taking a new vow? So is this the beginning of it? Because as we trail through it, he's telling that when he lands in Ephesus and he's preaching in the synagogue, he's, I can't stay. I have a vow to complete to God. I need to be in Jerusalem for this feast. Because again, when it's a Nazarite vow, you sit in Numbers 21, there's a sacrifice that's going to go on. And it's an expensive sacrifice. There's a burnt offering. There's a sin offering. There's a wave. There's multiple animals that are being sacrificed. Grain offerings, drink offerings, wave offerings, every single one of the offerings that you see in the Old Testament and Leviticus, all of them are listed in the completion of this vow to God. And when you sit in Numbers 21, it doesn't give us any, well, what's the purpose of the vow? What's, uh, uh, what does it entail? What's being promised to God? Is it if then, God, if you do this, then I'll do that? Or God, this is what I'm going to do? Or is this a period of... 
We don't have the specifics other than this word for Nazarite. It means consecrated, dedicated, and the word also means a crown. And when you sit in Numbers 21, it says this vow is consecrated upon the head of the individual is they have intentionally dedicated themselves, consecrated themselves to Yahweh for some reason. We don't do this for the most part in Christianity, not in, not in my experience. I haven't sat and I'm going to make this vow to God and here in this vow I'm going to separate myself from you know, for a Nazarite, it's separating yourself from drink. It's making sure that you remain clean and pure according to the law, that you're holy and separate. If you touch a dead body during this time, you have to shave your head, burn your hair, and start the days all over again. If you said, hey, this vows for 60 days, and you became unclean during that 60 days, you got to start it all over again. So there's, there's some rules associated with that. But whatever's going on in Paul's life, he's not sitting in some legalistic theology of the Old Testament, because Paul is clearly a New Testament believer. He's been regenerated. His faith, his righteousness comes from God and God alone. But here, in his culture, he, uh, in his background, he's dedicated himself to God for a very specific reason, something that's very important to him, something that I believe that the Holy Spirit has spoken to him and is leading him in, to the point of, you know, he's, he's looking for open doors to share the gospel. Jews in the community of Ephesus, Paul, stay, stay a while. His vow was so important to complete for him and his relationship with God. He says, I got to go, but God willing, I'll come back. And then we watch that God willing as he goes into those, you know, back into Asia and then lands back in Ephesus for a couple of years. I brought up an icon. Anybody know what an icon is? Iconography. So this is, a, this is, a, this is from Greece. Uh, had the opportunity to go there. Um, but the tour guide that, we, that was leading us on a Footsteps of Paul tour, um, she was a Greek Orthodox believer. Now, at this point that I went, I'm probably eight years in the Lord. So I'm eight years in the Lord. I'm still arrogant. I'm still arrogant. God's working on me. But I was much more opinionated in my judgments in regards to other groups of people who say that Jesus is their Lord, such as Catholics, such as Greek Orthodox, such as much of the Protest many of the Protestant churches. Um, I was taught to have a lot of issues with errant doctrine, which we can go through the spectrum of Christianity, what is known as Christendom in the world, and, and come up with a lot of issues with doctrine. In Catholicism, you deal with a lot of, there's a lot of idolatry in their artwork, in their statues. So going to Greece, go to all these churches, and there's, there's paintings everywhere, beautiful paintings in every single one of the churches that you go into. And me, like, I have an opposition to that because it, this is a graven image, right? There's, that's not right. I mean, look around. Do we have any pictures of anybody in here? It's, it's you know, I've got a kind of little opposition to that. This gal that was leading the tour, she was able to communicate her background and her relationship following Jesus in the way and was able to communicate to me, this is just a picture of my brother. And we sit in the Greek culture you sit in the, uh, people aren't able to read. So you go back 
and the foundations of the gospel being shared in these communities and so much of the culture not being able to read. Wherever you go in a Greek Orthodox church, that's the face of Paul. So the uneducated, the illiterate, as they go into a building, they see all these gospel stories painted as murals on their wall, not as idols, but as reminders, as a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was one of those things, it was, that was a switch for me in regards to believers from different cultures, believers that would be defined major denominations. You know, Calvary's not a denomination, we're not opposed to denominations, but there's a lot of issues that comes with denominational. I mean, we've all sat in these kinds of uh, discussions for the most part. And I'm bringing all this up because as we sit in this whole section and titling it the way and bringing up all these different nuances of how Jesus leads us down the same path, but in very different circumstances and very different backgrounds, it's easy for us to judge somebody else's journey with Jesus um, through criticism, through judgment, through wanting to pick up the stones and throw But we watch multiple characters in this passage not engage those who they consider to be immature or a little bit off or deviant in their relationship with Jesus. They come in there and they strengthen and they support. Paul's heart is he lands back in Antioch. This is hometown. He's going there. We're told earlier on, you know, the first time that he went back, they're proclaiming to the church all the incredible things that Jesus had done in all these different communities. And you know Paul's there communicating the same thing there in Antioch. We don't get the specifics when he's at home, but he leaves again. And what's the purpose of leaving? It says that he wants to strengthen the church. So everywhere that he's going, he's going to all the churches that he's been to before, probably new ones also, in order as he's going through modern-day Turkey. And it says that he's there to strengthen them. And the idea of strengthening is making sure that somebody is on the solid foundation of Jesus and Jesus alone. It has the idea of like you're, you're leaning on something for support. And think just the visual that we get from that. Think of all the things that human beings lean on that are unstable, that are un, in, unable, not capable of supporting your life when the real trials and when the real struggles come in, that that thing that they're leaning on, and we've all experienced this too, if we're leaning on self, leaning on another human being, leaning on an ideology that is false and not true, what happens when tragedy strikes? What happens when the suffering comes in, the, the circumstance comes in, there's a, there's a failing, the cane fails, the crutch fails. And again, it's not, we're not walking alongside of each other, strengthening one another so that you can walk independently in this life. As we strengthen one another, our encouragement to each individual is you need to trust in Jesus. You need to lean on Jesus for everything. For your parking spot, for your breath, for your food, for your marriage, for your children, for your community, for your culture. Everything that we are, uh, that we have the privilege of experiencing in this life, we're to be on the firm foundation of Jesus. Because everything else is shifting sand. Everything else is shifting sand. 
So Paul's heart is he's going back to these communities. Is he there to tell everybody what they're doing wrong? How your religious practice is wrong? Do you think that the worship of Jesus looks different in, in Ephesus versus Derby versus Lystra versus Jerusalem versus Corinth versus you know, Philippi or Rome? Do you think that the, the, what the gathering of the body of Christ looked like, it took on different flavors in those communities? Absolutely. I bet very different. When Paul says he becomes all things to all people, it's not that he's becoming an alcoholic so that he can minister to the alcoholic. It's he's engaging in individuals' culture, their backgrounds, their understandings, their perspectives, not for the goal of fixing them, but for the goal of pointing them to Jesus Christ so that Jesus can fix them. My job's not to fix you. Jesus' job is to fix you. Jesus' job is to fix me. You're not, your job is not to fix Blake. But if you think that I need to be strengthened in somewhere that I'm weak, let's have a conversation. You know, don't come to me with your, your pride and your arrogance, and I'm not to come to me with my pride and my arrogance. But Paul, again, his heart as we're watching him, it's to seek to make sure that people are established in Jesus and Jesus alone. And then the second, we watch Priscilla and Aquila. So we watch this husband and this wife. Aquila's the husband, Priscilla's the wife. We see them in multiple places in the word, and they're always there strengthening the church. But here you have another believer. Apollos is a Jew from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. It's another major port town of the Roman Empire. Ephesus is a major port town of the Roman Empire. Corinth is a major port town. When you sit in these communities, they're very eclectic. Because as merchants and trade, they come to these communities, they establish businesses, you know, they have their families there. So you have all these different quarters of... of, uh, uh, people groups. And again, you can sit in New York, you can sit in LA, you can sit in Seattle, all these major port towns in America. The diversity of the cultures is great. And it's, and it's awesome because it's a picture of just humanity in general. It's awesome when people are pointed at Jesus. So Apollos is from a different culture and a different background in many ways than Paul. He's come to Ephesus and we're told that he's, he's an educated man. So this, this would be, he's, a, he's in the academic circles. Paul is in the academic circles too. He's a really studious guy, but from his own testimony, he says that he wasn't a very good public speaker. He wasn't confident in it. He felt weak in it. Apollos is the exact opposite where he is eloquent. He is powerful, it says in the scriptures, powerful in the Old Testament. And as he's there preaching in the synagogue, what, what is he teaching? This is, this is where it gets kind of strange because it says that he has been taught the way of the Lord and that he is preaching the word of God accurately. Yet, as Priscilla and Aquila are listening to him, and again, that means Priscilla and Aquila are going to synagogue. They're still attending a Jewish synagogue. We don't know what house church looks like at this time in this community. They're still going to Jewish synagogue. They hear this man. They hear the words that he's preaching, but they know that the words that he's preaching are according to the teachings of John. So something's missing. So there's a question there. Is Apollos even saved? Does he even know the name of Jesus? Has he expressed faith in Jesus Christ? What is it that is off in his communication? What is it about the gospel that he's missing? We don't have a clue. This is what it, I greatly appreciate 
about the Word of God is how opaque it is sometimes, where we can understand the principle of what's going on, but the, the nuances, the specifics of the situation is like looking through uh, fogged glass. We really can't see the details. And honestly, I think asking the question about whether or not Apollos was saved or the human being that you're interacting with is saved or not sometimes is the wrong question. Because how we approach, depending on how we're asking that question, is how we approach that person. And when you look at Aquila and Priscilla and the information that's being given there, they, they listen to this man teach. Is it multiple weeks? We don't know. But they take it upon themselves as the spirit is moving in them to invite this guy over. Hey, you know, come on over for a falafel. Let's, let's sit down and have a conversation. And they, it says that they taught him more accurately the way of God. Now, the way of the Lord and the way of God, it's the way. It's following Jesus. There is no difference. There's, there's no distinction. But somewhere in Apollos, he's off doctrinally. He's, uh, he's deviant, literally, in, in some fashion or another. Not, like, not deviant and he's evil, but there's something about his relationship and his knowledge and his maturity and who Jesus is as Messiah that's off. And here you have this couple that comes alongside of him and instructs him more accurately, and this is who Jesus is, and this is how you're to follow him. And he feels affirmed in that as they sit in the Old Testament with him, as they sit in the testimony about Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, about the Holy Spirit that's been sent. And then what does Apollos do? Forget you guys. Think, think what it takes to be a, a disciple of Jesus for your whole life. We get stuck in our ways pretty. You learn something the first time, and that's kind of what you hold on to the rest of your life. But when we sit in within the cultural Christianity in America, a lot of you have had to and still need to unlearn a bunch of things that people taught you that has nothing to do with who Jesus is. I've had to. I, I locked into a Bible-teaching, Jesus-loving, Holy Spirit-believing congregation very early on. In fact, my entire Christian walk has been in those congregations and I learned things from those congregations that was wrong, a wrong heart, where Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. That is not the mind of God. That is the mind of Satan. And again, it's, we have to acknowledge those kinds of things. Like if I, if right now, if I drop dead right now, and I got to go up to the pearly gates, and there Peter hands me the doctrinal exam, am I going to get 100% on Christian doctrine? Yes or no? Not a single one of us is going to enter in by getting 100% on the test. We have access to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us has a stubborn and rebellious heart, mind, and streak within. And when, when, one of our, when somebody who loves you is willing to come alongside of you and say, Hey, what about this? Have you looked at it from this point? Hey, let's talk about that. Having that openness over. Let's go to the word. Let's see what Jesus is doing. Let's see what the Holy Spirit is seeking, uh, speaking and how he's changing and transforming. And what I love about this is Priscilla and Aquila didn't sit in the audience and said, that guy's a really good speaker. But man, he's a Yahoo. And walk out the door. 
They, they, they chose to invest in him, and their investment in Apollos, as he is following Jesus in the way, what happened? This man who was, before he had correct doctrine, he was on fire for God. He was inflamed, passionate in his relationship with God. Before he even had, you know, before he could get a, a, you know, a solid 90 on the test, a solid A. He was already inflamed in passion. And God continued to take that passion, and he took that passion, and he goes to Corinth. And what does he do when he shows up in Corinth? What does it say that he does? He greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Because somebody took the time with him to correct him, to help him mature, to help him see things from a different perspective, to grow him in his knowledge about who Jesus Christ is, that gift that was given to him as he follows Jesus on the way, what does he do with it? He takes that gift and he goes and he invests in others. And this word for helped, it means he contributed to their lives. Other people who have already been exposed to the grace of Jesus. And then we've just spent a really long time in First and Second Corinthians. We've gotten to know this culture. There are those in that Corinthian community that they looked at Paulos and they saw how he encouraged them, how he spoke, the truths, how he was contributing to their lives in the community. And they said, man, I really like Apollos. Paul was a total dork in comparison to this guy. And that's where a lot of the divisions started. And it wasn't that Paul, Apollos was coming in and he's all polished and everything. He is following Jesus according to the way that Jesus has set for him as he's maturing and as he's growing. And what happens? He's able to contribute God's grace that has been given to him into other people's lives. And then the same thing happens after Apollos leaves in chapter 19. Paul comes to Ephesus and he's there for over a couple of years. Um, once we finish chapter 19, we'll spend a couple of weeks in Ephesians looking at God's grace and then our response of gratitude to God. But when Paul lands in Ephesus, it seems like before he even finds any believers, before he finds uh, Aquila and Priscilla, um, you know, how, how it's accounted here is he, he runs into a group of about 12 guys. And who knows why and how they got together, but he's listening to them. What does he ask? He knows that they're missing something. Same thing, Aquila and Priscilla, through the Holy Spirit in their lives, as they're inter interacting with Apollos, there's something missing. And they helped him. Same thing here. Different story, different context, as Jesus is leading Paul in the way. These guys are missing something. And he asks a question. You receive the Holy Spirit? When you first believed? And there's a question here. He calls them disciples. Most of the commentators want to say that means that they're disciples of John, that they're not disciples of Jesus. But they're looking at it and saying, you've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's a, yeah, I didn't grow up in this context. Um, I can't, in fact, I can't tell you, not that I can remember the past really well, but I don't remember ever hearing about the Holy Spirit in church growing up. I'm sure I did, but I don't remember. And like for me, even my own personal story, when I, in, it was in April 1999, I'm in Snowbird, Utah, ski resort in Utah, family life marriage conference that my mother-in-law made sure that I went to. 
Because here's this wingnut dating her daughter that's not saved and better get to know Jesus before he marries my daughter. As they're praying for me and interacting with me, here the gospel is shared. I still remember that moment of having that opportunity. Blake, do you believe that Jesus is the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth? That became a man for the purpose of dying for your sins, dying the death that you deserve. Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? Do you think that he is just a, a good religious guy that died in the past? Or do you really believe the testimony that he rose again from the dead, that people witnessed that and proclaimed that? Do you believe that he ascended to the right hand of God? Do you believe that this God who became a man is coming back? Yes or no? I was putting this, yes. And I stepped from that moment from death, a child of wrath, a child of darkness, a child of disobedience. In that moment, through faith in Jesus Christ, I became a child of God, a child of light, a child of love. And from that moment, I was filled with the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Almighty God. Now, I didn't hear about the Holy Spirit at this conference. I heard about Jesus. I heard about how to love my wife in communication and relationship. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And so it it took the Lord some cleanup time in my own life. Julie and I determined through the Lord's leading about which side of the path that we were going to lead, live. We determined, you know, we are going to follow Jesus on the way our entire marriage for the rest of our lives, no turning back. And that was probably, I don't know, four or five, six months after we got married. I started attending a new believers class at our, at our church. And part of that, you know, baptisms are all set up. I didn't sign up on the list because I don't like people looking at me. I don't like attention at all. It makes me really nervous. I still remember this is an Assemblies of God church, so they worship for an hour. I mean, it's, it's, it's great worship. They worship for an hour, taught for an hour, so don't complain about how long my servants are. Um, but it was one of those things. Uh, I was probably the 20th person. I was the last person that day. I'm sitting, you know, where I sat, a few rows from the back, the Holy Spirit just speaking to me that I needed to stand up, that I needed to go up there and make that public profession and be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not into the Assemblies of God Church, not into any other denomination, ideology, but to be baptized in his name. I can tell you from that day forward, my life was radically different as I followed Jesus in the way. I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't start prophesying. But there was a major gear shift in my relationship with the Lord. And that's led us to where we are today. So when I'm talking about uh, Chris is telling us to give thanks to God, and we're singing about his faithfulness, I'm sitting here just, God, thank you. For all that you have done to make me to be the man of God that you created me to be. Thank you, Lord, that you have changed me, that you have transformed me, that you have sent men and women into my life 
to correct me when I needed correction. For these men here, they were baptized into John's baptism, this baptism of repentance that we can all go and sit in the gospel accounts in regards to the way um, of the Lord that John was preparing in the community. And here, Paul is, we're not told that this conversation took two minutes or two hours, but he has an extended conversation with them, revealing to them, John, the man that you're following, the baptism that you were baptized into, he told you about the one who was to come after him. And the one who was to come after him is the Christ, who is Jesus of Nazareth. And you watch these men in obedience become baptized, the baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and what happens? God does something supernatural for this group of guys. We're not told that if they went and found a stream or a river or they just poured water over their heads, we're not told the form of baptism because that's irrelevant. But what is relevant is they're not, no longer named with some other man, which John the Baptist was a great man, and you can sit throughout history, so many people have been baptized into their parents' traditions. And that's not to throw a stone at any denomination whatsoever, but so many people who say that they know the name of Jesus and that they follow Jesus, they've really been baptized into the name of their culture. They've been baptized into the name of tradition, and their lights are not on. And that's not to judge whether they're saved or not, but they're, they are off. And there are conversations. We live in a community where mo a lot of people know the name of Jesus. And that name of Jesus is not the revealed word of God from heaven, Jesus. It's a cultural Jesus. And here Paul walks alongside these guys, doesn't throw stones at them, and again, just walk on by and say, well, there's another weird group of guys. He engages them. He teaches them. They are um, given this experience, this supernatural experience to confirm what has just occurred in their life. Talking to Eli this week, he's you know, studying some things in the Bible. God does a lot of really weird stuff in the Bible. And there's a lot of that really weird stuff that we say to God, let me experience that. I want to do weird stuff. I want to see weird stuff. We're going to sit in next week, Paul's little aprons and, and handkerchiefs where people get healed from a fabric that he wore. That's really weird. I want weird. God, I want to see you. We want to see you heal people. We want to see people fall in love with you. Again, as Paul continues to engage in this community, what is he doing? He's engaged with those who are curious about God. And some of those who are curious about God, what do they say? I don't want anything to do with that Jesus that you're preaching. There's this hardness there. There's a stubbornness. And that happens in a lot of people. And as he separates the disciples, the followers of Jesus on the way, as he, se he separates them from that obstinate heart and they go to another building that's called the school of Tyrannus and again there's there's no it's like the first school of ministry so to say where Paul is teaching every single day um, there's different ideas whether it's at morning or night and and how that played out but here people who want to grow in their relationship with Jesus they come because they're curious and as they come and as they're prepared and as they're equipped what happens they go out to the masses. 
all of Asia, Jews and Greeks heard the word of God. They heard the gospel about Jesus Christ. You go sit in Revelation, the seven churches in Revelation, they all heard the word of God because of this context. Those are all, all seven of those churches, they are in the province of Asia to the east of where Ephesus is. The thing that we need to, just final thought, and worship team come on, one of the things that we need to pay attention to in the book of Acts, it is, it is very micro in its attention. Here we're introduced to all different kinds of people that know something about Jesus from their different context, and then they're all, they're mashed together in, in different cities at different times. The gospel from when Jesus first sent the Holy Spirit, the Father and Son send the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost, and you have 3,000 Jews step from death into life and faith in Jesus Christ on that day. Where did they go? They went back home. They came from all over, and they went back to all over, and they went out with the gospel. Every single one of them following Jesus on the way some of them in great maturity, some of them in immaturity. But this is the process of sanctification where we all need to grow, mature, pause. Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I do what I do? Welcome to be challenged by the truth of God's word. Be welcome to be challenged. Welcome the challenge that you get from other believers. And again, not those who want to come in and knife you and just correct you and, and, and mold you into their form of doctrine. But those people who you know, you know, this person clearly loves me. They, they care about who I am in Christ. They want to see me be strengthened. They want to contribute who Jesus has been to them. They want to be able to contribute Jesus into my life. They want to see me. They see, have you ever just seen somebody who you know loves the Lord, but there's just something that's missing? For some, it's, it's, the, it's that baptism, that power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Again, I believe that the moment that I stepped into faith in Jesus Christ, that I was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But my life experience has been, I have had the Holy Spirit come upon me at different times to empower me to do exactly what he's calling me to do. And I challenge you this morning, just are you missing the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives? There was a season, even, even, after that, uh, even after that baptism moment, when we were there in Salt Lake, the Lord very specifically leading Julie and I to, you know, to go to the leaders of the church and to ask them to pray over us to receive this, this empowerment from the Holy Spirit, not for our glory, but for the sake of serving him, knowing that he's calling us, knowing that he's directing us, leading us on the way. Now, maybe some of you, we're here for that. We want to see you filled with God. We want you madly in love with him, serving him, contributing into other people's lives, Jesus and not yourselves, and being blessed by the diversity that you bring. I'm very thankful for all of your different backgrounds. I'm thankful that all of us aren't, you know, we're not all cut from the same cookie cutter, right? He's made us to be who he wants us to be. I love it. Let's worship.